Hello, everybody. This is George. Thanks once again for downloading and listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. We have another news and research podcast for you this week, our second week in a row, just because there's a lot of things that happened this week that we wanted to talk about, and there's always good research to share. So we'll talk a little bit more about that once the podcast actually begins here in just a minute. Before we get into it, though, I did want to remind you that you can always reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. And you can reach out to Patrick at patrick at itlcoaching.com. If you want to reach out to the podcast more generally, you can find us on Facebook uh, at Pleasant Podcast, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast, or on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast. Uh, Likewise, you can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Let's get into it. Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel and ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta. We appreciate your being with us. We decided to do something a little bit different this week. We are, for the second week in a row, going to talk about news and research here. It's not only because there's always good research to talk about, um, but because this was kind of a huge news week. <laughs> yeah. um, there was some, some pretty big pieces of news we definitely want to talk about, and there were some, some, some other slightly smaller pieces of news, but, but pretty consequential pieces of news we wanted to make sure we discussed as well. And so, um, so for the second week in a row, we're talking about news and research. Next week, we'll have our Kona prediction or our Kona uh, a preview week, and then the week after that, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to issue week, and we'll be talking a little bit about some, some common mistakes that, that coaches and athletes tend to make when they're doing endurance training. So, um, Patrick, how's your week been? Uh, week has been good. Uh, it's, I think the most interesting part of the week has been hearing about the Boston qualifying changes. Right on, right on, which is, uh, I want to say the Boston qualifying standard changes are probably the thing that more than anything else pushed me into wanting to say, okay, we need to do news and research on the podcast again. (laughs) Um, because yeah, if we, if we were to talk about that for next week, I mean, that was such a, I mean, if, if your social media is like mine, it was it was huge. It was like Boston Marathon standards and Brett Kavanaugh. That's like that's like what everybody was talking about this week, right? Right. Um, so happily, uh, the Boston qualifying standards were not nearly as divisive as the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, but um, we won't get too much into that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who haven't heard, maybe you're just returning from Mars or something. Um, <laughs> you know, they did not only announce what the cutoff was for this year, and they had to drop the standards four minutes and 52 seconds, Mm -hmm. but they also announced that they being the Boston Athletic Association, that moving forward, they're going to drop the standards five minutes. So next year, going into training for for Boston 2020 or or trying to qualify for Boston 2020, everybody knows their standard to even apply is going to be five minutes faster than it's been the past four or five years. Right, right. Yeah, so... so yeah, I I the, I don't really like the way the Boston qualifying has worked over the course of the last several years, um, because a, as you know, you would run a qualifying time and then you would sign up with your qualifying time, but then you had to hang out and wait for a few weeks to see whether in fact that qualifying time was fast enough to actually get you entry into the race. Or I would even say a lot of people waited a few months. Maybe they qualified and. In a March, you know, marathon. Yeah, and yeah. they knew. All right, I ran a three o three. My qualifying time is three o five. Maybe that will make it. Maybe it won't. I'll find out in September. Yeah, and that's way too long. You, you don't, you know, in, in no sporting event should you 
you know, play the Super Bowl and then find out seven months later if you won or yeah. if you made it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's an excellent point. And so I, I, I um, and, and like you and I have said many, many times, if you do do that 303 and you're like, oh, I don't know if that's actually good enough, you know, is, mm-hmm. is, is, is that good enough? You can't just hop in another marathon a week later and try and shave off another two or three minutes. I mean, you know, that's what your qualifying time is now going to have to be. Um, and so, yeah, the way it's worked um, over the course of the last several years is that, that you do get your qualifying time and then you have to wait to see whether you get entry. And over the course of the last several years, you had to have actually beaten the qualifying time by a few minutes in order to actually get in. Um, last year, it was three minutes and 23 seconds. This year, it was four minutes and 52 seconds. And so on average. And so that means somebody, so say somebody in, in the 18 to 34 age group. So Patrick's age group. Um, the qualifying time was 3.05. That meant that ac- to actually gain entry into the race, you had to run 3 flat 08. You had to run 3 hours and 8 seconds in order to actually gain entry into the race. And so that means there's all sorts of people who ran between 3 hours and 8 seconds and 3 hours, 4 minutes, and 59 seconds uh, who were between the ages of 18 and 34, who are men between ages 18 and 34, who didn't get into the race. Um yeah, and I, I I just never I've never liked that. I like the idea of of you qualify, you're in, <laughs> right? Because people train for those specific times, yeah. right? They train kind of saying, hey, if I run this time, that's a Boston qualifier, that's a BQ. Mm-hmm. So you hate to kind of take it away from somebody after they've celebrated having a Boston qualifying time. And I call and to also give some perspective too, uh, you know, the times have fluctuated over the years. So I'm looking at at a screen right now or, or a history right now. Between 1990 and 2002, the 18 to 34 age group, and we'll just use that as a proxy, right? Since that's kind of where we started off, right? They had a qualifying time for men of 3:10. Okay, so that was what it was from 1990 to 2002, and then um, from 2003 to 2012, the men still had the 3:10 qualifying time, but some of the later kind of older groups, like the 60 plus groups, they had some slower times than than previously because they realized we need to kind of divide up the 60 and 65 and 70. Right. And then again in 2013, the race got so popular that they dropped the 18 to 34 group down to 305. So this has been done before where they've updated the the qualifying times. Mm -hmm. The problem was they dropped it down to the 305 for the 2013 race, but essentially with the bombings happening in 20, you know, in that year, um, in, in 2013, the race got so popular and has continued to gain popularity that every year they keep saying, okay, now you have to make it by a minute or three minutes or four minutes. Right. And with, with this year's being 4.52, wipe off five minutes and call it a day. Right. You know, like you need to and let people, you know, a, as they did. So I was very happy to see that they made this change because it was one that's kind of had been coming for a few years. And it's one that, that, that has been discussed on message boards like letsrun.com. And you've heard even... You know, some people within BAA saying we need we're going to reevaluate our registration process and our evaluation process. Yeah, I I don't like the sort of the two tier process, the two step process, because if nothing else, it kind of leaves this gray area. And so you're a Boston qualifier, but not a Boston entrant. Right. Do you know what I mean? And so, so what does that mean for somebody who this year, for example, a, 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 a guy who's 18 to 34 who runs 303? qualified for the Boston Marathon, applied for the Boston Marathon, but then didn't gain entry. Does he get to say that he's qualified for Boston? Well, he did qualify, but he didn't actually gain entry. So I, I, I don't like that sort of gray area. I mean, I, I appreciate your, your, your Super Bowl metaphor that 
when the game's over, you want to know who won, <laughs> you know, right. and, I, and I, I very much agree with that. Um, and so so hopefully to me, this is a step towards saying, OK, everybody who actually meets the qualifying standard will get in. Um, but as Patrick said there, they took off five minutes for men, 18 to 34. They kind of took off kind of five minutes across the board. Yeah. Um, but but so for for uh, in 2018, 2019. So people who are running Chicago, you know, next week and people who run in New York next month and and. You know, people running a little bit closer to home here. If they're if they're doing the Rocket City Marathon in Huntsville in December, they're running the Marine Corps Marathon. You know, in in a couple of weeks. Um, if they're running the Philadelphia Marathon um, next month, if they're running the California International Marathon in December, um, and so those are all times that will will qualify them for the 2020 race. So basically, anything between now and and. Uh, September of 2019 will qualify you for the April 2020 race. All those folks have to run faster time. So it's uh, it's three hours for men 18 to 34. It's three hours and 30 minutes for women age 18 to 34. 305 for 35 to 39 men. Uh, 335 for 35 to 39 women. Uh, 310 for men 40 to 44. Um, 340 for women 40 to 44. Uh, it's 320 for my age group. 45 to 49, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then 350 for women age 45 to 49. And and it kind of goes on down from that, um, kind of steps on down from that. So, so yeah, generally speaking, they, they shade about five minutes off. Um, and hopefully it'll get rid of that, that weird kind of gray area between folks who qualify but don't gain entry. Um, hopefully this means that, that everybody who qualifies and applies to, to, to run will, in fact, gain entry. So I think it's a good change. We'll see. Yeah, and also kind of, walk us back a little bit to look at the history. So they obviously had to do this. They had to, you know, make these kind of adjusted cutoff times, if you will, because they decided we need to cap the field size at 30,000. In 2014, they had 36,000 runners and decided this is too much. You know, they're, you know, whether for security reasons, for, for public safety reasons, for public transportation reasons, they decided we need to cap it at 30,000. And, and kudos, by the way, to them for, in 2014, recognizing that it was a special race yeah. and and basically increasing their, their field size by about 50% because there was such a higher demand and people really wanted to do it and were inspired to um, not let the terrorists win, if you will, um, and, and say, I mean, you were one of those people. Yeah. Um, and... Um, and so kudos to the BAA for actually saying, okay, you know what, 2014, we're going to stretch ourselves here, and we're not always going to have this field size we have in 2014, but we are this year because we realize how, what, what, a, what a particular event this is, even within the history of the Boston Marathon. Yeah, and so they've, the cutoff time went from being, uh, they dropped it down a minute 38 seconds to two minutes 28 seconds to, to three minutes, to, like I said, now 4.52. And to give you an idea, they've had roughly two to 5,000 qualifiers not be accepted mm-hmm. depending on the year two to five thousand yeah that's a lot of people yeah. that thought they ran a boston marathon or, or qualifying time and then didn't get to run so so kudos to them for for kind of making this step and um i was really happy to see it because it, it's been one that's i shouldn't say it's been a long time coming but it's kind of been stewing for a couple of years and yeah. I, i'm glad to see them make the the right call and take the step forward sooner right rather on. than later right on i did have one athlete that wrote to me and said does this mean i have to run five minutes faster I said no. It means you have to run what you were going to run. <laughs> yes, but 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 it does mean the qualifying standards have now changed. Um, so so yeah, um, good stuff. Speaking of uh, of marathons, uh, the Chicago Marathon is coming up just next weekend. As a matter of fact, um, found out this week that Amy Cragg, um, who um, won 
the uh, Olympic Trials Marathon in 2016 uh, in Los Angeles, and was of course competed in the Olympic tri- uh, the Olympic Games in uh, in 2016 um, in Rio. Uh, she uh, ran 2:21 earlier this year in Tokyo. Uh, so a brilliant marathon for her in, in, in Tokyo, and folks were excited to see what she was going to do. This week she announced that she's pulling out of Chicago, um, that she's not going to be able to run the Chicago Marathon. Um, and so sorry to see that. Um, I, I heard through the grapevine um, that that she injured her hamstring because she paced uh, a, a 5K race. She paced like the first 3K of a 5K race. Um, and then in the wake of that, which was, you know, a pretty, pretty difficult uh, effort obviously and an effort that was outside of her norm if you will i mean she's a marathoner and she's pacing for a 3k of a 5k um and uh and after that she actually uh tripped she just sort of was was walking along and stumbled a little bit and strained her hamstring and it just never really got over it um and kind of trained and trained and thought she was going to be okay and just kind of got to this place where her hamstring is bothered um, and, and she just doesn't feel as if she's going to be able to pull it off at Chicago. So I was sorry to hear that. I was looking forward to see her run. Yeah. You always hate to see an, an elite athlete have to pull out of a race, especially this quick. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or excuse me, this close to the race. Yeah. And so between her and then also Jordan Hesse from the Nike Oregon project, um, who, uh, who ran so fast or has run really, really quickly over the course of the past couple of years. Um, uh, she announced about two weeks ago that she's not going to be in Chicago either. So two of the top American women at the Chicago Marathon are not going to be competing there, which is too bad. Um, I mean, it's still going to be a pretty brilliant race on the women's side here. Um, and there's three women in the field who have run under 220. Um, and, uh, and another couple that have run under 221. And so it still promises to be a pretty fast race here, but, um, but we'll see. Uh, I'm sorry that I'm not gonna be able to cheer for either one of them. Um, Gordon, Gwen Jorgensen is, uh, is still there. Hey, you'll be able to cheer for her. (laughs) Yeah. And I should mention also, speaking of Gwen Jorgensen, um, off air, um, uh, Haley corrected me the other day, uh, when we, a couple weeks ago when we interviewed Haley. And, and told me that Gwen Jorgensen does, in fact, have a a qualifier for the Olympic marathon trials, um, that she qualified with a half marathon. So she's good to go. Um, but um, but yeah, hopefully, I mean, her current uh, marathon personal best is 241. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm thinking that she'll, she'll, she'll run certainly faster than that in Chicago. I'd like to see her have a good race. I really would. Yeah. Um, I don't think she's going to win, but I'd like to see her have a good race. Um, so we'll see. Who do you think is going to win the women's race? The women's race? I'm going to go with Debaba. Are you? Yep. Different Debaba, Burhani yes. Debaba, not Turanesh Debaba. Correct. Not the baby-faced killer who uh who ran in Berlin a couple of weeks ago. Um but uh but 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 Burhani Debaba also from Ethiopia who has run under 220. Yep. Good guess. Good guess. Um How about this? Let's let's each give a uh let, let's give kind of a favorite and then we'll give a bit of a wild card. All right. All right. Well, my favorite is my wild card. I'm going to go with Laura Thweet from the United States. She's, I like it. She's only run 225, you know, in the absence of of um of the other sub 230 American women there. I'm going to go with Laura Thweet. I'd I'd like to see her do well. Um but uh but yeah, I mean that that you have a African contingent up front, uh Rosa Derehe mm-hmm. from 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 Ethiopia, Florence Kiplagat from Kenya who Okay, if I'm really going to say who I think is going to win, I think it's going to be Florence Kiplagat. But <laughs> yeah, me too. I was like, that um, almost seems. But but uh, and, and then Burhani Dababa, all of whom have run under 220. Um, yeah. I think it'd be great actually if we saw um, and Laura Thweed. I'm going to go with her. She's only run 225, but but I really would like to see her do well. Um, I think it'd be pretty cool if we got to see in Chicago um, a race similar to what we saw in in 
Berlin where you had three women under the course record and and um I would like to see that but we'll see. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um what do you think? I I would say that the two clear favorites in my mind are Debaba and Kiplagat. As I said, those were kind of the two I was going back and forth with in terms of who I think is really going to win. I mean, they both have very similar personal best. They both have kind of a strong track record of, of strong performances. So those are the two that I kind of look to see it, to be in the front. Very good, very good. Now, who's your wild card? Um, you know what? Since people give me such a hard time for hating on Gwen Jorgen, she's going to be my wild card. Um, now, I am going to say she's going to be my wild card in the terms of, like, she's going to be the wild card in terms of performance, not in terms of, of competing for the win. She's not going to win. Um, but uh, but but I I would like to see her run under two twenty eight. I think that would be fun to see. Yeah, um, agreed. Yeah, that that would be good. And I, I and I I in part I say she's not going to win. I say in part she's not going to win, not just because I don't think she's going to win, because I don't think she can run with those women up front. Um, but also because I think that she's not going to try to run with those women up front. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's good. I, I I think that she knows she's a little bit out of her league with women who can run under two twenty. Um. I don't think she's going to set off at 520 pace. Um, and I think that's smart. <laughs> yeah, that's it, okay. and it shows growth, just like we've talked about before on this podcast. Kind of some recognition of, you know, walking before you can run, to use kind of an mm-hmm. overused analogy in our yeah. sport. Yeah. But, I mean, she's a she's a triathlete. I mean, she's a she's a rhythm runner. I mean, she she finds her rhythm and she stays in it. Um, and so, so I really don't see her going out in 520 and, and trying to stick with uh, – uh, with 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 those that trio up front, all of whom have run under 220, um, and we'll probably be aiming to to run under 220 in Chicago, but we'll see. Uh, the weather, by the way, I should mention this as well. The weather for Chicago, it's, it's forecasted to be like in the mid 60s for highs, so a little bit on the warm side. Um, you know, I've talked on this podcast before about how the ideal conditions are supposed to be low 40s, which would be cold for spectators, but it'd be like perfect for for elite marathoners. Um, but Elliot Kipchoge ended up running the world record in Berlin in the high 50s last week, and so that kind of it doesn't blow apart some of the ideas, but it definitely uh, kind of messes with some of the ideas about uh, what's possible in slightly warmer weather. Um, you want to talk about the men? Let's do it. All right, so on on the men's side, of course, over in Chicago, you have uh, uh, Galen Rupp from the United States with his 206 PR uh, coming back and uh, uh, trying to defend his title in Chicago. Um, I'd like to see him defend the title. Um, uh, a lot of folks really don't like Galen Rupp. I like him just fine. He's a twin dad like I am. Got to appreciate that. Um, but um, I think, did I just make that up? Not a clue. It's the first time I've heard it. Really? But... I might have just made that up. I'm going to Google that real quick. Talk <laughs> yeah. All right, so I'm going to keep on talking about the race, and, and, and you mm-hmm. Google that real quick. Um, but 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 I am wondering whether whether I just made that up. But anyway, um, in addition to him, you have um, about a dozen guys who have run under 208. Um, uh, and in that crew, uh, the fastest, the person with the fastest PR in that is uh, Mozanet Guramu uh, from Ethiopia, who's run 204 flat, which is no joke. Uh, Buhana Legesi, um, who's uh, who's won several races, run 204.15, um, and Dixon Chumba has run 204.32. Um, so a lot of folks there. Um, notably also Mo Farah has run 206.21 and of course is a multi-time winner of, uh, of gold medals and world championship medals on the track in the 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters and is a training partner of Galen Rupp, um, or at least one time was. And then of course I cannot leave out my man Yuki Kawauchi from Japan, winner of the Boston Marathon this year, uh, running 208.14 is his PR, but, uh, but he's going to be in this race as well. And so I think he's actually sort of a wild card. I don't think he can run 204. Um, 
but Lord knows he's probably the most consistent athlete in that group and, and, and one of the toughest as well. So, so we'll see. Um, what do you think? All right, a couple of things. All right, first, I realized I forgot to give my women's mar- wild card. Oh, my bad. So No, I forgot as well. I, I so moved on from you. I'm going to go with Sarah Crouch right. on the women's side. From the United States From well, the United right? States. Uh, her best is 232, which she ran in Chicago about U-S-A. four years ago. And I believe she ran about a 235 in Houston earlier this year. And the reason I'm going with her is because she is a former Zap athlete. Oh, there you go. So she started running with Zap right out of college and has really kind of taken off since then. So I'm kind of rooting for her. And to be honest with you, I was going to pick Gwen Jorgensen just to needle at you. But since you have <laughs> come around. And her, hey, her, now, now let's, let, don't get it twisted, man. I haven't come around. <laughs> <laughs> just because I want to see her run well, it doesn't mean that I'm now a fan. Let's, let, let, let's, let's not get take, carried away here. And her and I have a PR that's like 10 seconds off. So it's kind of like, there you go. come on. 241 people let's do this um so anyways that's that's the women for the men um in terms of the favorite it's got to be galen rupp i mean the man's wearing bib number one you know it's that 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 tells you about all you need to know um it's it's a relatively stacked field as we talked about before so this is not like berlin where kipchoge was racing the clock right i mean it was this i would not be surprised if rupp won i would not be surprised if karui won even i would not be surprised if mo farah won but I, I think the the favorite is Galen Rupp, and that's yeah. kind of the one I'm rooting for. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, yeah, we'll we'll see. I mean, so much of this is about how the race turns out and how it unfolds. You know, I mean, uh, I would like to say that you know if if it starts slowly, I mean, clearly that works in Galen Rupp's favor. You remember yes. last year, uh, it was a fairly pedestrian start, and then he closed super fast. He closed in I want to say 102 last year, mm-hmm. um, and and just kind of blew everybody away in the, in the back half of it. Uh, Mo Farah is obviously known for being able to close really, really well on the track, but but whether that actually um, will translate to the marathon, at least it hasn't quite translated to the marathon and, yet. And I don't think it will. Mm-hmm. Let me say this. Saying I don't think it will, we're talking about, I mean, we're splitting hairs. So we're talking about an elite runner in, yeah. the, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that that jump from the 5K 10K on the track to the marathon, mm-hmm. I think that takes years of transition, yeah. of dedicated training. Um and so I just think it's not quite time yet. I think the capabilities there, obviously. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the elite field, that's kind of what I'm looking at. And then kind of the, just like you, the the big name I'm going to be watching is uh, Yuki Kawauchi. I mean, who can't love that guy? He's right. I mean, almost our... Who is now a pro. He is almost our podcast favorite. I mean, we, <laughs> everything... He can jump into, you know, the Birmingham Marathon and I'm be like, I'm following the Birmingham Marathon right. now. Yeah, I'd go sign up. Right. Um, yeah, no, I, I'll say this about Yuki Kawauchi, too, is that, that there was a degree to which he was, and, and we've talked about this, and I don't feel like this is this is giving him a hard time to say this, there's a degree to which he was a little bit sideshowy, yes. you know, is that, that so he, he held the world record and still holds the world record for the most ever sub-220 marathons, and he runs, you know, more than a marathon a month, and, and he held the record for a marathon or a half marathon wearing a panda costume, and, and things like that, right? But one of the things that, that and but I liked him, I thought he was cool, I thought it was great. Um, but, but one of the things that really changed my thinking on him was that piece that came out in that Japan running times blog that we talked about on the podcast, um, you know, after Boston, um, and, and where, where it talked about how much strategy and how much specific training he put in for Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, he, he led through the first mile in 434, uh, in Boston and he, he led the whole field through the first mile and he said very much 
I was focused on Galen Rupp. I was trying to take the sting out of Galen Rupp because I knew that he was able to finish faster than I was. Mm-hmm. And so, so this is a guy who's not, he, he approaches running as a professional and he is now a professional. And so it's, it's like, um, that, that to me sort of took him out of the realm of being sort of this, this sideshow, this sort of joke runner who just kind of got lucky on that day. And instead made me realize that he's a serious guy who had a good plan, executed the plan, and was successful. And so I am certain that he's probably coming into Chicago with something similar, with some sort of plan to shake up the race and try and make it unfold in a way that will favor him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what that plan is, but he showed in Boston that if when he executes a plan, it can be successful. Yeah. Um, and so I think of nothing else he's going to be doing something in the first half of the race to animate the race and try and make it unfold in a way that, that, that favors him. And I'm excited to see what that is. Yeah, agreed. And then one other name I just want to throw out there is Suguru Osako from Japan. Uh, first of all, he was born in the 90s, which still <laughs> blows my mind. Yeah. Um, and he's a Japanese athlete, and he's recently run 207. Yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned him. 207 yeah. and, and 210. So he seems to be some, and he, and he started training with the Nike Oregon Project, I believe, in 2017, maybe 2016. So he's just one I'd like to keep an eye on to see is he kind of is he someone who's kind of brewing and kind of cooking, so to speak, who's who's ready to burst sometime soon. Right on, right on. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned him. He's he's an exciting runner. Um, very cool, very cool. Um, all right, let's talk about a couple other pieces of news here in this kind of big news week here. Um, for those of you who, who are not fired up about the uh, the talk about marathons, let's mention a couple of uh, uh, of, of um, multi-sport things. Uh, Ironman Chattanooga is going on right now. Um, and Ironman Chattanooga, as some of you are probably familiar with, uh, had to change its format. Um, they, uh, they had to cancel the swim. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, started with a time trial bike and then went on to the 26.2 mile run. Um, and so the reason why is because they, they actually had to change part of the run course as well. The reason why is because they said the exit from the swim, because the river was so high because of all the rains and the hurricanes and all that sort of thing over the course of the past month here, the river was so high that the exit was completely submerged, um, and thereby making it unsafe. The current was so strong in the Tennessee river that they actually thought it would be unsafe for runners or for, for, for people to swim with it, even though they swim with the current. Um, it's literally generally one of the selling points of the race is that you have this current that shoves you through the water so quickly. And they said the current is so strong um, because there's so much water rushing through the river now that not only is the exit unsafe, but the current is actually unsafe. It would be literally overcoming you. You could not swim to keep up with it, or at least a lot of people in the field couldn't. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's something. All right, so a couple of things. One, I saw my first Chattanooga Ironman last year, mm-hmm. and I remember the times as people were getting out of the water and looking to one of our uh, fellow coaches and saying, so are these all, like, elite swimmers, and I just never knew it? And it's, like, this dude in his 40s. And he's like, no, like, this race, like, you're swimming with the current. It's it's a lot different. So, it's kind of known for that, yeah. Yeah, it is known for that. But it, it's interesting, too, because when they pointed out, well, we're scared it's going to blow you right past the exit. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that's something I didn't even think about. But Because right. also, once you get past the exit, then there's the bridge, and so then you can really get stuck. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I'm glad they made the safe choice. It's unfortunate for people who are doing their first Ironman and they're mm-hmm. trying to say, hey, I did this for the first time. Mm-hmm. But I th- I think it's still, I think you still should end the race saying, I did my first Ironman. Absolutely. Because, you know, once again, I am a novice of novice when it comes to triathlons. 
But when you look at the amount of time you spend swimming versus the amount of time you spend biking and running, yeah, it, it really is a bike race with a marathon and a short swim to start. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's a swim for a warm up, and then it's a hard bike, and then it's a it's a hang on for the run. Exactly. Yeah. No, it it really is, and and you're totally right, and and I can totally appreciate how certain people. You know, I I really wanted to have that one forty point six. I really wanted to have that two point four miles. I I totally get that. Um, particularly people. I mean, I coach somebody who's a swimmer, <laughs> and he and he's like, well, there goes my strongest you know attribute. Right. Um, but um, it it I, I I totally get that, and I agree with you. This doesn't take anything away from the yeah. the, the accomplishment for me. What's more, too, and and is that, and we've talked about this with marathon training and with Ironmans as well. And, and it's true with endurance sports in general. The race is always sort of the, the, the icing on the cake. And the race is important. I don't mean to suggest that the race is not important. The race is supremely important. Um, but but the journey to get to the race, what you have to overcome to get there, the things that you must do, I mean, that stuff is is what really and truly defines endurance sports. Yeah. Um, that's where you really have to endure. And that's where you ultimately get enriched in the process. And so... Everybody who's who's on the starting line or was on the starting line this morning um, was there after having done all of that training and having done all that work, believing that the swim was going to be there. And so just because the swim's canceled doesn't mean that you didn't do all that work and you weren't enriched by it. Yeah, that, I think that's the unfortunate part. Is it, It's kind of hard to explain to people who aren't in marathon running or in you know triathlon training or, or in you know, the endurance community is the race is the fun part. Yeah, they hear about you running twenty six miles or or biking, swimming, uh, and running one hundred and forty or you know whatever it is, and they think, oh my gosh, that's that's horrible. It's like actually that's the fun part. Yeah, the the hard part is the five a.m. swims and and right. runs, etc. Yeah, yeah, day after day after day after day. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. So, um, so I was I was sorry to see that it was canceled. Um, that the swim was canceled and they had to change this, the, 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 the change it the way they did. And I, and I'm using that language on purpose, by the way, they had to, um, yeah. because, because I think that's, I do think they had to, I think that was a, I think that was a wise choice. Um, but I, I really don't feel as if they had any other, other option there. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're, we're tracking people and following people along with that as, as we're, as we're speaking today. Um, and then at the same time, literally on the same day that they announced, um, there were going to be changes to the Ironman Chattanooga course. The Ironman North Carolina 70.3, which is in Wilmington, uh, was canceled, um, mm -hmm. which is not the slightest. I mean, I could not be less surprised by that. <laughs> you know, I mean, Wilmington has uh, for the past two weeks literally been an island um, uh, for a while there, there. There was no way to get in or get out of Wilmington. Um, because of of uh, hurricane water and rising rising river uh, river tides, um, and so so yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, of course, there there was damage to some of the course itself. Um, there is possibilities that there was going to still be dangerous conditions um, uh, when the time came around in a couple of weeks, uh, and probably most importantly, frankly, is the fact that 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 community needs to focus on other things right now. They have like stuff they're trying to repair and get lights back on and try and try and get people in homes. Um and and they don't need a whole bunch of triathletes showing up to do half Ironman. <laughs> right, and they also so. don't have the same resources as a big city. Yeah. So it's it's uh, you know there's an additional strain. Yeah. yeah, if you've ever been to Wilmington, I remember we were there once and they just had a small storm, just a regular beach storm, mm -hmm. and even that felt like a hurricane to, to kind of exaggerate a bit just because yeah. i mean you are right on the water it is kind of an island mm 
Um, so I was happy to see they made the right decision there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and, and to their credit as well, um, uh, Iron Man did say uh, for all the people in that seventy point three. Um, they said, they said, here, we'll give you free entry to uh, a select number of races. You can transfer your entry without penalty, or you can get guaranteed entry to a, a, to another set of races and stuff like that. And so, so they did offer options to people, um, who were training for and were focused on Ironman North Carolina 70.3 and now simply can't do it. Um, in the past, Ironman has made WTC, the world triathlon corporation, the company that owns Ironman has, has had to cancel events, um, and they've made alternatives that I didn't think were very good alternatives. Case in point, a few years ago, um, Ironman Maryland, which is also today, as a matter of fact, um, Ironman Maryland, which is in the Chesapeake Bay somewhere, um, they had really um, uh, difficult weather conditions. Um, and they, they canceled the race, but they decided to postpone the race by a week. That to me, I was like, "You're postponing the race by the week," and they lost half the field. Yeah, um, because because most people like you and me who have jobs, you can't just be like, "Oh, okay, I'll just put it off a week and change my flights and all my accommodation." You can't do that. Oh, yeah, I, I told my boss I was not going to be here for three days leading up to this race, but hey, boss, it's actually going to be three days next week instead. Like, you can't just change that on a dime. Yeah. Um, and then when the race actually did come, they ended up canceling the swim and ended up being a bike and a run, just like Ironman Chattanooga is today. But I didn't think that was a good change. Yeah, um, I think that, that you're far better off just kind of canceling the race and saying, hey, why don't we help you get into one of these other races instead? Um, and that's what they've done here. So you and I both know people who, who were scheduled to do Ironman North Carolina 70.3. They're now going to be choosing what they're, they're going to be doing. But um, I, I do wish the best, of course, to, uh, to all those competitors who don't get to compete in, in that 70.3. And then, of course, to, to all the communities who are continuing to be affected by, uh, um, by the, the, the pretty devastating hurricanes that have been uh, in in North Carolina and South Carolina over the course of the past couple of weeks. Um, all right. Let's talk a little bit more. I, I said we were done talking about marathons. A couple more pieces of news related to marathons. We'll mm-hmm. love one more. Um, and that's that the Atlanta Marathon course was announced. Mm-hmm. So, Which is significant because that's going to be the Olympic trials course. So part of it at least. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so so we'll see. Yeah, the trials course, you'll remember that it's going to be on a loop course. Um, but But they announced last year. Well, first of all, they announced last year that, that – the, the Georgia Marathon, the Publix Georgia Marathon, which is in March, was changing its name to the Atlanta Marathon, um, which you and I both agreed was a good change. Um, and then um, it's still going to be sponsored by Publix, and so I think I think a lot of us around here still call it the Publix Marathon. Um, and then they also announced uh, within a couple of days of that that they were changing their course. And you and, and we had talked on here that, that I had hoped that there was going to be some overlap but we don't know exactly what the overlap is going to be or anything else like that. We'll see. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, they, they've changed it. Probably the most significant change or, or the, the best way to describe it is that the marathon now pretty much runs almost lockstep with the half marathon course um, right up until the finish. And then while some people go straight and go to the finish, the marathoners take a turn and they go out and do a, an additional 13 miles. That's mentally tough, <laughs> I can tell you, because that's the way that, that a lot of uh, like ha- uh, Ironmans are set up. Um, like Ironman Louisville, you run to that finish line, and then you take a right turn. Um, uh, Ironman Wisconsin, which I've done, you know, it runs right up there to it, uh, and then you turn and you go out for another loop. Um, but, uh, so, so that's kind of hard, but, but it also takes out the, the part that you swept through Decatur, um, mm-hmm. and you stay mostly in Atlanta. Um, and uh and as you do that second loop 
And I think that's a good call. So I actually live right by where the Decatur course ran. I mean, oh, yeah. I'm like within a mile or so. I used to run right by the church I go to, um, which you actually had, had connections to at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is in that area, there was almost no cheering. It was yeah. it was very sparse because you're kind of running through a bit more of a residential area. Folks are kind of like, you're almost running in the way of people trying to get to church and they're like, I didn't know there's a marathon here. You know, it's kind of that part of town where it's a bit more, you know, it's folks who who are, you know, coming out of their neighborhoods. And so it's not quite as, uh, I shouldn't say supportive, but they tend to be not as aware of kind of more civic events, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. No, I think it makes sense. They're just not as plugged into what might be going on in town or more more, more in the center of town, in the center of the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's good. And you and I have talked about this before, and I think I said this to, this, to you this morning while we were running. Um, I think it's good because it's the Atlanta Marathon, and it's still in Atlanta. Um, they didn't say, oh, well, yeah, we're going to change the course, and now it's gonna now we're going to run it in Marietta, where I live. You know, or now we're going to run it in Smyrna or, you know, something like that. I mean, there's so many marathons that say, oh, yeah, it's the Savannah Marathon, which is next month here. Um, and, and you don't really spend all that much time running in Savannah proper. You run, like, out on a highway. The Charleston Marathon, I've heard, is that way, that you run a little bit in Charleston, but then you end up running on this highway outside of town. Um, New York City Marathon is such a cool marathon because you run through New York City. Yeah. Same with Chicago. Um, yes. And they're cool marathons because you take a big old tour of those gigantic cities. Um, and and I think the same thing should apply to, to the Atlanta Marathon and other marathons. Like if, if it's the Atlanta Marathon, it should run you all through Atlanta. And, uh, and, 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 and the parts of Atlanta you want to show off, too. Right. To put it bluntly. Um, yeah. I mean, we have a, we have a cool city. It's historic. Um, and, and uh, you know, we had the frickin' Olympic Games in 1996, and there was hardly any of that on the course before. Um, whereas now you're running under the Olympic rings twice mm-hmm. uh, on the new course. You're going past the warm-up track. Um, and so, so where I worked during the games. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't think there's a sign-up or anything. But, you know, for those of you who are running the Atlanta Marathon next year, when you go there's past a, There change, actually is a sign that says George worked here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to put it up for people next year. It's going to say, Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. George Darden worked here during the 1996 Olympic Games. First job out of college. Uh, but but you go by that track now um and 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 you like i said you go under the rings twice which is cool which is something that was largely absent from from the atlanta marathon course before mm-hmm. the georgia marathon course before yeah so big time kudos to the atlanta track club i mean they've done such a good job the last you know several years of really kind of engaging with the city and engaging with all types of runners and so like even this particular course it gives runners of all experience levels and expertise levels something to be proud of what i mean by that is it's it's a bit of a preview of the you know olympic trials course just like we talked about before Mm -hmm. it also is one like we said that runs through parts of the city that a lot of people connect with Mm -hmm. right you talk to a lot of people and they say oh i love to go to to brunch in virginia highlands i love to go to this park to piedmont park i love to go to um, the stadium downtown. I don't know if it necessarily runs by the stadium, it but, does. Yeah. but it hits so many different parts of the city that people, um, are connected to. Yeah. You know, like you mentioned, like you don't want it out here as much as I love running at Kennesaw mountain. And as much as you have associations with Kennesaw mountain mm-hmm. and in Kennesaw in general, a lot of the city doesn't, but right. it, this is hitting a lot of different parts of the city mm-hmm. that everybody can connect mm-hmm. with. And I think that's important. In the city of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I mean, by all means, if, if Kennesaw wants to have a marathon, great, I'll sign up. Kennesaw Marathon, <laughs> right? You know, not the not the uh, not the 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 Atlanta Marathon. Yeah, um, there is a locomotive chase half marathon in Kennesaw, I know. Um, and then there's a race. Uh, 
I don't know if I told you this. There's a, there's a race in a few weeks. It's a 5K that starts actually across the street from my house. It starts at that church. Right? I'm pointing because all of you can see it on the podcast, but it, but but Patrick can see it. Um, <laughs> the, the, it starts at the church right across the street from my house and then runs up the street and then runs on the road up to the top of Kennesaw Mountain. It's called mm-hmm. the Assault on Kennesaw Mountain. It's a 5K. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to do it, but given the fact that I have Achilles issues, I kind of feel like it's a terrible idea. To, we'll see. To charge up the mountain? Yeah, yeah. yeah. To, 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 to do a, Civil a, a, War a, mi- a mile and a half climb up the side of a mountain. Yeah. It's on the road, so it's not quite as steep as it would be on the trail. But still, we'll see. We'll see. It's in a couple of weeks from now. Um, all right. So speaking of 5Ks, uh, Caitlin Tui, who we've talked about before on this podcast, uh, she is a junior, which that, by the way, she's a junior at North Rockland High School in New York. Last year, as a sophomore in high school, she ran 15.37 for a 5K on the track, um, which shattered the uh, the 5K girls high school girls record for the United States. Um, this last, makes me wonder what I'm doing with my life. Right? Um, <laughs> last week, she, uh, she, she uh, ran the Ocean State Invitational in East Greenwich, Rhode Island, um, and ran 16.06. It was the fastest that a high school girl from the United States has ever run a cross-country 5K. It was entirely on grass there. Um, she said afterwards, she said, quote, I think I could have broken 16 today, but I've never run the course before, so I didn't really know what to expect. I think in the future, if we come here again, I can try and break 16, unquote. It's incredible. She would have finished second in the boys' race. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the the second place boy ran sixteen oh seven. She outkicked him and 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 finished second in the boys race um, at a big North, Northeastern Invitational. So, yeah, props to Caitlin Tui. I hope she keeps it up, man. <laughs> um, we'll see. We'll see. All right, so let's talk about a little bit of research then. Um, uh, do you want to go first with the research or me? Sure, because mine's it, it takes a bit of time to kind of set it up, so I, I, I can start us off. That's how research goes. All right, tell us about it. All right, so. My study so is like it about a, sleep. No, it's not, um, and it's because I haven't <laughs> been sleeping this week, so I didn't have quite the energy to find a sleep one. Okay, there you go. Um, a sleep study, so to speak. So my study starts to address why some people, or the, the previous findings about why some people respond better to fitness plans than others. Oh, okay, that's cool. Okay, so there was a study. So I, I need to provide a little bit of background, and then I and then I can jump into what this study actually found, and then why it's important to us. As, as runners and coaches. So there was a study done in the 1980s that found some people made massive fitness gains while others barely improved when both groups adopted the same 20-week exercise program. Okay, so they, they got kind of a cross-section of the population, so to speak. They had them all go through this 20-week fitness program or exercise program. Um, they made them run, like, exercise at, at a given or prescribed heart rate. And then they found at the end, some people received massive improvements some people receive, you know, moderate improvements, and roughly twenty percent of the subjects didn't really get much fitter at all, and that's a pretty depressing finding when you think about it. Yeah, because it's like, man, is it? Are some people really almost trapped in their own body or their own genetics where they can't even improve themselves with training? Right. Um, and that also just not only is it is, does it seem unfair, but it's a very uh, it's not a very motivating finding, right? Because it's an easy excuse to fall back on. If maybe you've hit a wall and you've plateaued for a few months, which happens to every runner, mm-hmm. you know, as you kind of train and improve. Yeah, and it and it's also contrary to to one of the things that I always say that I love the most about endurance sports, and one of the things that was alluring to me from the very start is that there seemed to be a direct line of correlation between 
the amount that you work and the amount that you improve. Whatever, whatever your rate of improvement was, whatever your upper ceiling was, if you worked harder, you would get faster and better. Right. And, and this seems to, at least that finding seems to contradict it. That finding from the 80s, yes. Right. And that's also just, it doesn't seem to make too much cognitive, or kind of, common, it doesn't fall in line with the common sense test. Yeah. Because you would think, you know, humans are really designed to adapt. I mean, you know, when we, I mean, whether it's muscle memory, um, our actual, like, cognitive memory, we are designed to, you know, improve vastly based on, you know, what we exercise, you know, so to speak, or what we train. Right. And running specifically is something, I mean, we're the best running animals in the world from a long distance perspective. So it doesn't make sense from an evolutionary perspective that some people can't hack it, for lack of a better word, or can't seem mm-hmm. to improve their lot. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that study from the 80s has been cited as evidence that there is a genetic basis of how we respond to exercise. But, you know, like I said, there are some kind of lingering questions. You know, are some people incapable of getting fitter despite exercise? That kind of seems to be the obvious takeaway. Um, was there something wrong or misleading or unintentionally overlooked in the methodology of that study? Hopefully. You know, you know it, there's a lot there. Well, a recent study from researchers at Queen's University's Muscle Physiology Lab, say that one five times fast, <laughs> challenges the assumption that everyone is working equally hard even when they have the same heart rate. Okay. Okay, and by heart rate, I should say like 65% of your max, right? Yeah. Um, so it's your more, you know, the same percentage of their max rate. So what they did... So, so it wasn't that everybody was working out at 140 beats per minute. It was that everybody was working out at a prescribed percentage, which Cor- is good. Correct. Okay, good. Because so, that would have been a methodological problem. Right, and a rather obvious one for right. runners and coaches. Right. So these researchers said, we still think even if you standardize that percentage of max heart rate people are still some people are still working harder than others Hmm. so they took a bit of a different approach and what these researchers did is they um prescribed the same heart rate or the same uh heart rate percentage just like the previous study but then what they did is they measured the levels of lactate in the runner's blood as a marker of the stress on their muscles right so if everybody's running at 65 percent intensity they then said okay who's actually producing the most lactic acid, mm-hmm. then we can determine who's really working the hardest, who's okay. really putting in the effort. So they did that so they could first understand if running at a given heart rate percentage was equally hard for each runner. Spoiler alert, it's not. Mm-hmm. And then they did that so that they could determine if the blood lactate levels were more predictive of fitness outcomes. And sure enough, the blood lactate measurements after the first workouts were much more predictive for who would gain the most or least fitness at the end of the training cycle. Hmm. Okay, so let me let me back up. Okay. So the original study said, all right, everybody run at 65% of heart rate for this amount of time, and we'll kind of base our whole 20-week training schedule based on that. Right. And then they found some people improved a lot, some people improved moderately, some people didn't improve at all. Hmm. These people said, we're still going to do that, but then we're going to measure how much lactate is kind of flowing through your blood at the end of the, the workout, right. and then we can really determine... Who's really pushing themselves and who's not? Once again, all the even runners... Though, even though they're all going 65%. Correct. And they actually found a, a great deal of variance in terms of how much lactate their body was producing. And then that was much more highly correlated to, with who actually saw fitness gains. Hmm. So that was a bit of a mouthful of a summary. Um, but for me, I found the findings to be rather reassuring for those of us who are puzzled by the idea that exercise might not work for some people. Because it, it could simply be that everybody needs to push themselves kind of at a, in, in a different kind of 
manner. So like we can't simply say everybody run at this max heart rate or this percentage of your max heart rate and then, you know, X plus Y equals Z, you'll see these improvements, et cetera. There is some variability there. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the cause of the difference in fitness gains was that some people at that 65% heart rate, they still were not stressing their muscles enough. So I have some more takeaways, but I would love to hear your takeaways or kind of your initial reaction to this study. So to me, the biggest potential impact of this study is that it just it destroys technology. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it really does. It, it, it basically says that, that, that all the stuff around, oh, well, you're measuring your heart rate and, you, and you're looking at these different markers and blah, 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 blah. And it just basically says, you know what? All that stuff is bogus. And, and that what's, what's 65% and what, what should be uh, a non-lactate-producing heart rate for some people uh, is producing lactate, and, yeah. and so, so so that that to me, that's really striking, actually. Um, and and I've always said it it blows the lid off of a lot of coaches' methodologies. Yeah, no, totally. And you and I have talked about that that sort of um, that 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 sort of the two two types of coaches out there, the ones that are totally data focused, and the ones who I like to think I'm a part of the second group, who who yeah look at the data, but they use the data. Um, as a way to inform a lot of the qualitative stuff that they're getting from their athletes. Um, yeah, I always say data. So like when people tell me, all right, I can do the tempo runs in this or my VO2 max is this or my heart rate is this. I would say those are all just different data points. Yeah. There, there's no one single all-encompassing um, number you can have that, right. that really tells me, oh, if your VO2 max is this, you will run your marathon in this or you right. will run your 5K in this. Right. Yeah, no, and and I and 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 likewise with you know if if your marathon time is this or your five k time is this, this is exactly what your 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 heart rate should be for for these particular runs, and so so that that to me is actually really really striking. Um, I, yeah, and I'm and I'm almost kind of left speechless by that. As a matter of fact, just 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 the degree to which the 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 impact that that could have. I mean, if if we really were to kind of follow that all the way on through, um, the, the the thing that really leaves me with is that. I, I always have said that that runners should run or try and cultivate a feel, mm-hmm. um, and and cyclists too, and swimmers too, they, they should try and cultivate a feel for for how hard is this, um, and I and I I think that because I became a runner prior to the advent of a lot of technology, that I developed that feel, mm-hmm. and so today, if you and I were to get on the the starting line of a five k tomorrow. I would know exactly how hard a 5K should feel, even though my speed at the 5K has varied a great deal over the course of the past 25 years. Mm-hmm. Do you know? I, I know what 5K effort feels like. Yeah. Um, likewise, if you say go out and run, you know, 16 quarters at 5K effort, I know what that effort feels like. I don't need my watch to tell me that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think having that feel is something that that a lot of folks who who came of age in the age of technology don't necessarily have. Um. So yeah, I, I just I and, and so so it supports that. It supports the fact that that we as coaches and we as athletes need to be encouraging a, a sense of feel and, and feeling what certain pace feel like. Now, all that being said, we're going to talk next week or two weeks from now about common mistakes that athletes make. And one of the things we're going to talk about is people who run too hard on their easy runs. And so, I as I'm saying all these things, I might sound a little bit broken up, or I might sound like I'm I'm guarding or hedging a little bit because I'm thinking about a couple of athletes that I have 
that I'm always telling them that they, they run their easy runs too hard. And they do. Um, and and I, I know that they're listening going, ha, I told you, George, I'm running it exactly the way I'm supposed to be. Um, and I'm, you know what I'm saying? And so, so, so that's the reason I'm hedging a little bit. So, yeah, let, let, we, we, and we can also back up a bit. To me, to kind of build on your point, it, it's amazing to think if, if the highly sophisticated kind of tech-driven approach where you know exactly how fast you're running in that moment and what your average pace has been the entire run, if that isn't enough to tell you what the right intensity is, then the question is what is the right intensity, mm-hmm. right? And it's funny because even in this research, they said go back to the talk test, which we talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. Can you complete a sentence? Can you have a conversation? If the answer is yes, that should be a hard day. That's what you do on a hard day. You should not be able to be string together sentences for a hard tempo or hard interval workout. Um, if, if you if you excuse me if you can't string together that that sentence if you can't talk that should be what a hard day feels like if you can that should be what an easy day feels like yeah. um because once again talking requires oxygen <laughs> that's the entire point of training hard is to kind of put yourself in a bit of an oxygen dead and train your muscles to work with a lack of oxygen and it as we talked about before you know kind of in this age of kind of perversive like or pervasive fitness technology where we have so much information that it's almost pervasive and sometimes perverse. Yeah. yeah keep going. That it can almost paralyze us mm-hmm. to where we almost don't learn to run by feel. You almost need to make your mistakes in training so you don't make them later. You need to almost kind of build that feel for, for, for what a, an easy run should feel like, what a marathon pace should feel like, what a 5k should feel like. And part of that entails going out too fast and saying, Holy smokes, I never want to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Um, because we've all done it. And so it, it's kind of fascinating to, to see that, you know, almost the more sensitive barometer of, of our GPS watch almost leads us astray. And sometimes you almost need to take a more generic rule of thumb approach mm-hmm. as opposed to the highly kind of specific, um, you know, numbers approach that we, we do with our watch. And then to your point, too, about the hard days hard and the easy days easy. To me, one of the big takeaways from this study is I felt like this was a very scientific version of our old creed, hard days hard and easy days easy. And to me, that shows a lot of times we're not running our hard days hard enough because we may look at our heart rate and say, okay, I'm hitting it, Mm -hmm. I'm good to go, but we really need to be pushing it. Your goal is to almost make yourself um, sore at the end of the the run, Mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of interesting to see how we always talk about it. Hey, guys, easy days easy, keep it relaxed, keep it smooth. But this almost points to the, kind of the flip side of the coin of when we run our hard days, they need to be really hard. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and you make the point that, that heart rate data here is, is, is not reliable in terms of, of both easy and hard. So my, my first thought was thinking, because you talked about the 65%, mm-hmm. was thinking, okay, what's this mean for, for, for running easy yeah. um, and, and for, for zone two work on the bike and that kind of thing? Um, and and your point is that it has ramifications for what it means for being for going hard too, and I think that's a good point because what this specifically this study found was that the reason the twenty percent or so weren't improving is because they weren't producing, they weren't going hard, they weren't going hard enough to produce the like they you know to to kind of really leave themselves hurting at the end of the run. Yeah, yeah, and not that they weren't going hard, hard enough on their easy days, but that's just probably that they weren't going hard enough on their hard days. Cause, right. Because again, they were kind of looking at me and go, oh, up, let me back off a little bit up. Oh, this is what my heart rate says. You know, and so, so yeah, I, I do think it's in- interesting. Uh, so two other quick, kind of quick things I'll mention. One, in defensive data, um, you know, this is talking about heart rate data. And I think there are some data points, specifically I'm thinking of like power on the bike that I think is a little bit more 
objective. I mean, you know, so 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 heart. So the whole point of finding data is it's supposed to give you some sort of objective indicator of where you are, something you can almost grab and or wrap your arms yeah, around. Yeah, and 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 even if you're not feeling great, you can look at your heart rate or something like that, and you can be like, oh well, but my body's good, so I must, you know, I just need to toughen up or something like that, you know. Um, I and I think that that particularly over the course of the past fifteen years. We, we've kind of come to realize that, that, well, heart rate data, there's a lot of things that influence your heart rate. And so heart rate data is not necessarily the best data point. It's not the most objective data point. It's not necessarily the best indicator of exactly how hard something is. It's a data point. It's something to be considered, um, but it's not necessarily the best data point. And, and in my opinion, it's not as good as, say, looking at power on the bike. So power yeah. on the bike is a more objective measure of the amount of wattage you're putting in and it's not necessarily going to be affected by a lot of the things that that your heart rate gets affected by yeah there's more of a direct link between how much power you're producing right and how fast you're going and how hard you're working now that being said i did i did get engaged in an online conversation this week about power meters on the run and i very much think that that running power meters the technology is just not quite there yet um and i I think that, that that ultimately it can get there and i think it would be an interesting thing with with running but i just don't think we're quite there yet with uh with power meters on the run um but um the other thing that makes me think about is the conversation that we had last week about planning your marathon and 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 because marathons are different sorts of runs do they need to have a plan um more than say the plan that you would have going into a 5k and you kind of made that point and i've been mulling it over the course of the past week and this kind of makes me think about it a little bit more too like in terms of okay so here we are saying you need to cultivate a feel you know what it feels like but the point that you made last week was that going solely by feel in the opening stages of a marathon can be misleading and ultimately a recipe for disaster. So kind of where does that leave us? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I always use the watch as my kind of North Star for the first eight miles or so. Mm-hmm. Maybe the first, we'll say the first, uh, you know, yeah, the first eight, eight miles or so. First hour or so. Yeah, because really... You you have so much emotion that's kind of messing with how you feel mm-hmm. that on that particular day you need to use the watch kind of and really I don't use the watch as a as a as a floor I use it as a ceiling like don't go faster than this okay if you feel like going a little slower that's okay because if you're in shape you'll speed up later in the race and you'll you know you'll be okay mm-hmm. however I do use it as you know, a bit of a governor say, do not under any circumstance go faster than this. Okay. And then I also kind of have a bit of a game plan in terms of, you know, let's say you want to average, you know, seven minute pace per mile. Then you say, okay, that means no faster than like 645 on a downhill. Mm -hmm. You know, that way you can just kind of get a gauge or 715 on an uphill. Just because the main goal is to just keep yourself from going too fast. So, So the way that you kind of marry together having a plan and going by feel for a marathon is by saying that your plan should be a cap, not it, it should be a carrot. No, wait, like, a carrot and stick analogy. A ceiling, work. not a floor. Yeah, yeah that, that 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 you shouldn't be forcing yourself to speed up to hit the splits. You should only be forcing yourself to slow down to hit the splits. Correct. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. All right, something for me to continue to consider. All right, very good. Well, speaking of, uh, of of going fast in the latter stages, that leads us into my piece of research here, and this is what we'll wrap up with today. Uh, my piece of research came from uh, the Journal of Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise, which I think a lot of my stuff comes from. Um, so clearly a journal I need to subscribe to. Um, but uh, it's called Positive Work Contribution Shifts from Distal to Proximal Joints During a Prolonged Run. 
Um, and it comes out this month, August or last month, August 2018. Um, it's by a bunch of German researchers. Um, and what they did is they took 25 runners. Now, unfortunately, they're all dudes. Um, and so um, as has been the case throughout all fields of research over the course of the last hundred years, um, we tend to, to only use male subjects and then we tend to, to extrapolate that and apply it to female athletes or to female subjects. And that's not always accurate. Um, but anyway, 25 runners, all dudes, they, they, they took 12 people that they considered to be recreational runners. And so they said their 10 K PRs were slower than 4730. Um, and they took 13 runners that they considered to be competitive runners, which, they said was faster than 37.30. I don't like those labels, but that's just that's what how they labeled it. One way or another, they had people slower than 47.30 and people faster than 37 or 47.30 and people faster than 37.30. Um, and uh, they had them all run a 10k at 5% under their seasonal best on the treadmill. So 5% on their seasonal best for a 10k on the treadmill, that's hard. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that, that, that they're, they're working there. I mean that, that that's a difficult thing. Um, and what they did is they put 78 different markers on them, and they had 13 cameras actually looking at the various markers they had all over their legs. Now, 78 markers, that's a ton, um, you know, on, on their knees, on their ankles, on their calves, on just everywhere, right? Um, and then throughout the course— and, and if they're runners, they're skinny people, so there's not much <laughs> surface area to put those yeah, markers on. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then they yeah, the, the, the legs don't— not a whole lot of uncovered leg here. Um, I would love to see somebody try to fit 78 <laughs> markers on your skinny legs, buddy. Right, right. Oh, yeah. It's the pot calling the kettle black. Uh, anyway, uh, so they, they captured uh, data from those 78 markers using 13 different cameras, uh, and they did 13 different measurements throughout the course of, of the study. They did it right at the start. So so they began, and they did it right at the start so they could see kind of the way that things were working before any fatigue set in. Again, at 200 meters, again, at 500 meters, just, again, to kind of get a sense of what muscles we were using as as uh, the athletes immediately set off at 10K pace, right? Uh, and then after that, they did every 1,000 meters, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, all the way up to 10,000 um, as they finished, right? Uh, and what they found was that throughout the course of that 10K, as runners got more tired, the work shifted from their ankles up to their hips and quads. Uh, and that's what they mean in the title when they say it shifts from distal to proximal joints. Um, and so it shifts from your ankle joints and the muscles around your ankles, such as your calves, up to your hips, i.e. your glutes, and your quads, i.e. your knees. Um, and so so the, the, the amount of work and the amount of pressure that, that your different joints and different muscles are doing changes as you get tired. That's in and of itself not a big surprise. Of course, we, we kind of know that people change as they get more tired. But the nature of it is, is what matters, the fact that the work actually shifts from those ankles to the hips and quads. Um, now, they found, interestingly enough, that, that the work did not shift as dramatically in the faster runners as it did in the slower runners. Um, that, that, that there still was a shift, but the shift was more dramatic in the people who ran slower than 47.30 than it was in the people who ran faster than 37.30. Um, and now this is an important finding because uh, the for, for two reasons. Number one, because if the work is taking place in your ankles and in your lower extremities, those joints, and your, in, in particular your Achilles, uh, tends to be able to store energy immediately better and return it more quickly than your knees and your hips do. And so you get more of a return, if you will, from your ankles than you do from your knees and your hips. And so if you're using your ankles less, that means you're getting less of a return from your energy. Yeah. And, and for those of you who are a bit more visual, think about how when you run, how your ankle 
and kind of your, your lower extremities really kind of snap mm-hmm. with each stride. Right. Your hip's not snapping. And if it does snap, you got a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, so j- just to kind of further kind of illustrate what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, thanks for that. Um, and then in addition, your quads and your glutes, those are bigger muscle groups than, than your soleus and your gastrocnemius, um, which can be a positive thing, but the, but the problem is that they also use more energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... As you're nearing the end of a race, particularly a long race, particularly like a marathon, um, those muscles are more tired and you're not using – and they're less elastic. They store less and return less energy to you. And so so you're becoming less efficient and you're requiring more energy. Um, so, so things are just totally falling apart. Yeah, so I, – I, I like to call it kind of your quads, almost like your diesel engine, mm-hmm. right? For those of you who've ever run a marathon or a long race, like a Boston, which is downhill the first half and uphill the second half, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your your quads are really what your your body calls upon when it needs to generate a lot of power to kind of motor up a hill. Mm-hmm. The problem is, as you just mentioned, like a diesel engine, A, it's not efficient, mm-hmm. right? right? And B, once it's done, it is done, you know, once once you're and for those of you who have ever run like a Boston and had nothing left in your quads, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's no pushing through it. I mean, just like you can slam the gas pedal down all you want. It once you're out of gas, you're out of gas. Um, and and see and see, you don't get any free speed from your your quads or the joints around your quads and your hips. Correct. Like, and you do get free speed just from literally the mechanical energy storing and return that comes from your Achilles. Um, you don't get that from your knees and your quads. You don't get that 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 free speed from the return off the road, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, for for all these reasons, if you could, as a runner, use your ankles longer and keep that work from shifting up to your quads and your hips longer, you would be more efficient for a longer amount of time. Um, and if you're more efficient, you're faster. Um, And so in the conclusion, they wrote, the redistribution of joint work from the ankle to the more proximal joints might be a biomechanical mechanism that could partly explain the decreased running economy in a a prolonged fatiguing run. This might be because muscle tendon units crossing proximal joints are less equipped for energy storage and return compared to the ankle plantar flexors and require greater muscle volume activation for a given race. Um, in order to improve running performance, long-distance runners may benefit from an exercise-induced enhancement of ankle, ankle plantar flexor muscle tendon unit capabilities, unquote. So in other words, make your ankle stronger, the last longer, that will keep you from shifting to those more inefficient, larger muscle groups that both use more energy and give you less return throughout the course of the race, mm-hmm. um, which I think is sort of interesting. Um, um, now... I had sort of an, an, an additional thought to it that I was I was running by by you this morning when we were running, um, and that had to do with the the, the Vaporfly four percent shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, now the Vaporfly four percent shoe, you know Nike's big flagship shoe now, um, which it's um, you know cost two hundred fifty dollars, but but they have promised will will lead to a four percent improvement in your efficiency, which can give you a, a pretty solid boost in time, right? Just solely by putting on a different pair of shoes. And then we talked about a few months ago, there was an article in the New York Times where they looked at all this Strava data and they found that hey, you know what? There actually is a difference in the race times for people that are now switching over to vapor flies. Um, enough so that you and I both kind of said, you know. We might should get a pair of those, <laughs> you know. And so, so, um, but interestingly, um, Shalane Flanagan last year won the New York City Marathon wearing a pair of Vaporfly four percent. Galen Rupp last year won the Chicago Marathon wearing a pair of Vaporfly four percent. 
Both of them in those races won because they faded less in the last 10K than everybody else in the race. They finished stronger than the other people in the race. Most notably, just last week or just two weeks ago, Elliot Kipchoge set the world record in the marathon by running 60 minutes and 30 seconds for the back half of the marathon, which as we talked about, yeah, I mean, it's still just kind of, it's amazing even when you say it now, it's been two weeks to get accustomed to it. Um, But he did that by running 60-30, which only three Americans have ever run, period. Um, So a profoundly fast back half of that marathon, um, which was a 36-second negative split as well. And so to me, it makes me wonder Maybe the mechanism behind the Vaporfly 4% speeding people up is not so much that it's giving you a bounce that's making you go faster down the road, but rather it's because it's saving some of your, your ankle joints or, or it, it takes some of the work off of your ankles such that your ankles are able to remain in the game a little bit longer. Um, and therefore, when you get to the latter stages of the race not as much work has shifted from your ankles to your quads and your hips yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my theory. Um, and, and, and that's the, that, that's, that's definitely what I kind of think of as I'm looking at this particular piece of research. I don't know. By all means, folks, let us know. George at itlcoaching.com, Patrick at itlcoaching.com, pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know uh, whether, whether you think my theory is good or bad. Do, what do you think? I, I think it's an intriguing theory. And, if nothing else, I thought you you pointed out a good, uh, you made a good point that you know they're not pushing the vapor flies for five kers, right? Because you know the ankle is still in the game to kind of use your terminology in a five k and a ten k, et cetera. They're pushing this on marathoners. It's showing a big difference in marathon times. Yeah. That could be part of the secret that it's not that it's speeding you up one percent each mile. It's that you're not having or, or runners who wear it are not quite having the same fade the final 10 K mm-hmm. or maybe from hours two to two twenty. Mm-hmm. you know, for, since, you know, not everybody's running the same times or is yeah. on their feet the same amount of time, right? Because that alone is the biggest kind of white space in terms of most people's marathon training is how in the world could I just close my time? Yeah. The yeah. final 10 K or the final five K, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've all heard the phrase, Oh, I was on pace to qualify for Boston. And then I walked the final 10 K, right. which is like saying, okay, I mean, that, that doesn't mean anything. Because, you know, the, the race almost doesn't even start until mile 20. But the point is, I thought if nothing else, you brought up a good point that maybe it's not that it's speeding up the runners. It's that it's letting them hang on longer. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 letting those more efficient ankle joints, it's keeping them from tiring longer such that you can use them deeper into the race before you have to switch over to the strong, powerful, but inefficient hips and quads right um um, and how many people do you hear that say i was doing great and then my hips or quads gave out yeah that's usually what it is it's never my feet were hurting or i had a blister it was always hips and quads yeah yeah and when i think back to to um my last good marathon i mean what was holding me back in the last 5k the thing that was really holding me back in the last 5k was not that i felt nauseous it's not that i had blisters it's that my quads were so destroyed that I couldn't really get it going. And so, so, so I can't help but wonder, okay, so if I was wearing something, or if I had stronger ankles that day, or if, or if I was wearing a pair of shoes that had helped me save my ankles, um, would I have been better able to hang on and still run fast in that last 5K because cause my quads wouldn't have been as trash as they were? Right. And, I mean, to kind of put a bit of a summary on it, 
what they really do is they increase the runner's efficiency, right? Yeah. And that's that's, that's the 4%. That's 4% the 4% is not speed, it's an efficiency. Right. And if you think about it, efficiency, it's important in the 5K, but the longer the race, the more important efficiency is. Right. I mean, that's just all it kind of, to, to put it simply. Yeah. So then that, that really makes you kind of reframe how you look at those shoes. It's not quite the same math problem of just 4% off your 5K time, 4% off your 10K, et cetera. Right. It's more about it significantly and maybe improves your time after two hours or between two and two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting to consider, of course, in the, in the, in the ongoing process. And then by all means, if, if some of you are out there thinking about dropping $250 or more for a pair of Vaporfly 4% when then, then the, the next iteration of them comes out soon, uh, perhaps it's something else to consider. <laughs> and, and, and if, and if Patrick or I end up making the leap on them, we'll be sure to let you know as well. All right, Patrick, we appreciate it, man. Anything else to add? Uh, to all the Boston qualifiers out there who, who were accepted, congratulations. It's it's a big deal. It's quite an accomplishment, and it, it's a race you won't forget. For those who maybe unfortunately fell in that three- to four-minute range you know, below the qualifying standard, I would say keep going, keep trying. It's definitely worth it when you make it. Right on. I totally agree. Uh, congrats to everybody who did Ironman Chattanooga, and we will see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Don't forget to check out our sponsors too. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And of course, our new sponsor, Blue Pineapple Travel, a full-service travel agency that can book travel anywhere in the world for you. They're on Facebook at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, on Instagram at instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel, or simply at bluepineappletravel.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.